Hola mi gente. The moment you've been waiting for is finally here. My brand new book, Financially Lit, is officially out. And I can't wait for you to get your copy. Inside this book, I'm bringing you culturally relevant and relatable personal finance advice that will allow you to finally feel seen, heard, and understood. Whether it's the guilt you feel from being the first person to make it while members of your family are still struggling, or the way that financial trauma manifests itself in negative and limiting beliefs around money, Financially Lit is here to guide you through it all. Just a few years ago, it was almost impossible to find personal finance books written for first-generation wealth-building Latinas. We have been forced to navigate the complicated world of money with a bunch of money books written by old white dudes who don't understand what it's like for us first-gen kids. But that stops right here, right now. Inside Financially Lit, you will learn how to set boundaries with your familia, with your dinero, create and pass on generational wealth, diversify and increase your income, protect yourself from financial abuse, navigate the complicated relationship between amor and dinero, invest like a white dude or better, and so much more. You can get your hard copy and audiobook version of Financially Lit at financiallylitbook.com and make sure to join our email list so you can find out when I'm stopping in a city near you for the Financially Lit book tour. See you soon. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. When we think about adulting and financial adulting, we might think that we know everything and we're not making any mistakes and we just got it going on. But the truth is, is I still make mistakes all the time. I'm learning all the time. It's a journey. And so being a financial adult is actually not as daunting as it sounds. It's about taking small, consistent action that leads to big results. It's about knowing where our money is going, which sounds very simple, but it's actually very profound because it means how much is coming in, what's going out, what's going to our different goals. And as it can feel tedious to really nail that down, but it's so impactful and makes such a huge difference. You're listening to Yo Quiero Dinero a personal finance podcast for the modern Latina. I'm your host, Janice Torres, award-winning Latina personal finance expert. I didn't always have my financial shit together, but when I started looking for POC-friendly personal finance podcasts, I couldn't find any. And so Yo Quiero Dinero was born. On this show, I'll show you how to make dinero, how to keep your dinero, and most importantly, how to make it grow. Each week, I'm connecting you with the most brilliant minds in the world of money and business, so you can learn about investing, entrepreneurship, and building wealth. The best part? I'm dishing up all this knowledge with a sassy side of sazón. So if you're ready to be poderosa with your dinero, you've come to the right place. Let's dive in. Hola, mi gente. Welcome back to another episode of Yo Quiero Dinero, the podcast. This is your host, Janice, and you're listening to episode 130, How to Be a Financial Adult with Ashley Feinstein Gerstley, the author of Financial Adulting, a guide that breaks down everything you need to be a financially confident and conscious adult. Ashley is also a money coach, the author of the 30-Day Money Cleanse, and the founder of The Fiscal Femme, a money platform of over 200,000 financial feminists who are on a mission to end inequality through financial well-being. As a trusted money expert, Ashley's been featured on or been quoted in the Financial Times, Forbes, CNBC, Glamour, NBC, and the New York Times. Ashley's worked in the financial services industry for over 15 years, first as an investment banker, then in corporate finance, and most recently running the Fiscal Femme. She graduated with a bachelor's in finance from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Now, if you're asking yourself, what the hell is a financial adult? What is financial adulting? Am I doing this right? 
We'll answer all those questions and more during this episode. So stay tuned. Before we hop into today's conversation, I want to remind you to follow us on social. If you're loving this podcast and you want more community, you want to find out more about our events and all the stuff that we have going on behind the scenes, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and everywhere else you love to hang out on the internet. If you're loving this podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review if you listen to us on Apple. It's the easiest way to share our podcast with people that you know and love, and it helps us get discovered by amazing listeners like you. So take a moment, leave us a review, share us with your friends and family, subscribe so that you never miss an episode, and make sure to check out our blog, YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com, where you can sign up for our email list and you'll never miss an episode. Plus, you get exclusive invitations to our live events, special discounts for our digital courses, and as always, our best personal finance tips and advice to help you be poderosa with your dinero. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get into the episode. Ashley, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here. I am so excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. All right. So let's start off with you introducing yourself to the audience in case folks just haven't heard about you before. Yes, I am Ashley. I founded a company called The Fiscal Femme really because I needed it myself. (laughs) I studied finance. I worked in finance, still knew nothing about my own money. And (laughs) and this was about in 2011, maybe 2010. And when I went to go figure it out, I found that a lot of the resources were kind of boring, daunting, written by older white men. And I thought, you know what, I can share this in a more fun, accessible, enjoyable way. I started a blog that was called The Fiscal Femme, sharing what I was learning on my own journey. And it was a big challenge to have a voice and have my words out on the internet. Like, what if I change (laughs) my mind or grow or disagree with myself? You know, And then from there, people started asking me for help. Other sites asked me to write for them. And The Fiscal Femme kind of, that's, it grew very organically. That's amazing. And I think it speaks to the power of Just showing up, knowing that you have something to offer to the conversation and just not letting those imposter syndrome feelings start to get in the way and, and, you know, letting that stuff prevent you from doing what you got to do. So you are not the first person who has told me that they have a background in finance and feels like they did not learn any relevant shit that would actually help you manage your money as an adult. So what I've heard is like, you know, you get taught about how to help a business financially grow. You get, it's like the commercial side of finance, but it's not necessarily like how to budget, how to start investing. And so I think that's very interesting, very disturbing, um, (laughs) and says a lot about our general education system here in this country. So I'm curious, did you... What, like, what was your original career plan? Like, did you want to become like a CFO or what is it that made you pursue this career? Yes, that's a really good question. So you're 100% right. We were talking about company finances. There was nothing ever talking about mine. And a lot of the company finances were like very large scale. Like there was lots of zeros. So very not <laughs> relatable. Like maybe an income statement, you know, I could relate to my budget or something. But um, and I think, you know, what happened? I was in school studying finance. I guess at the time, being an investment banker was kind of like the hardest non-woman friendly career. And I want to just prove I could do it. So I went and I did my two years and I, you know, the lifestyle was tough, worked on average probably till midnight, ate dinners at our desks. I think the hardest part was that you could just be called back in at any time. When I switched to a job that had a better lifestyle, I took a pay cut. And that was kind of the impetus to figure this all out because when I was working all the time and making a big salary. I didn't have to think about it. I was doing not a lot of smart things anyway, but it wasn't kind of confronting me until I took the pay cut, lived in New York City, had a free time that I wanted to do all these fun things and started to see, oh, this is completely not workable and I I have to figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can totally relate to the idea of just thinking that the way to make money is to work a lot. And so I realized very early in my career as an engineer, I can't get paid enough to do shit that I don't like and that I'm not enjoying. And so that was when my kind of plan to escape the rat race began. So I love that you decided, you know, I need more balance in my life. And unfortunately, 
that can come with some trade-offs. And for you, that was a pay cut. So, so you start this platform, the Fiscal Femme. What was the impetus for you to be like, I think I need to do this full time? The impetus. So I, my, I had this lofty goal of building it on the side with my corporate finance job. And then once it was profitable and could pay me a nice salary, that's when I would quit. But that is not how it happened. In my corporate finance job, I ended up getting a promotion and they wanted me to, I was working as a CFO of one of their units and they also wanted me to start underwriting surety bonds. And so I would have to go through this intensive training because I had no idea how to do that. And I realized that that, at that time, I would have to either kind of go all in on this new role and put the fiscal fund aside or say bye. And for a while going into this, I had been saving up, I called it project freedom. (laughs) So every dollar I saved, I tracked and I tracked how much money I was losing every month if I paid myself and okay, I could survive this many months. And it was really motivating to put money away that way, um, to think about, oh, if, if I don't spend this, I can quit my job sooner. And I do think something you mentioned that you there's no amount of money someone can pay you to do things you don't want. I think it's as painful as it is, there's such a power to be able to experience that. I think a lot of people can look at a really high paying job and say, you know what, I will be happy because I'm making so much money. But to be able to experience it and realize that is not it like that feeling, then you kind of are, you carry that with you, I think, for the rest of your career. Yeah, absolutely. I was convinced, you know, I just need a specific title, a specific employer, a specific amount of money in my paycheck, and I will be happy. And I promise y'all, not how it works. Okay, not how it works. (laughs) I think another thing that a lot of people don't know how it works is actually how to manage your freaking money. My lessons as a kid were like, go make a lot of it, period. (laughs) That was the end of the lesson, not like, what do you do to make it grow? How can you stop working? How can you use money to do that? What investing is? None of that. And so I think the book that you are writing, and it's coming out very soon, it's called Financial Adulting. I think that's exactly what we should be talking about in this podcast and in the greater sphere of personal finance. So let's talk about the basics. When you, like, let's say you're going to explain what the hell financial adulting is to somebody on the street, what does it encompass? So I think when we think about adulting and financial adulting, we might think that we know everything and we're not making any mistakes and we just, we've got it going on. But the truth is, is I still make mistakes all the time. I'm learning all the time. It's a journey. And so being a financial adult is actually not as daunting as it sounds. It's about taking small, consistent action that leads to big results. I think that's really important. It's about just knowing where our money is going, which sounds very simple, but it's actually very profound because that it means where, what's, how much is coming in, what's going out, what's going to our different goals. And as it can feel tedious to, to really nail that down, but it's so impactful and makes such a huge difference. And then it's having plans and not only plans, really all they are, are ways that we're deciding to execute and achieve the goals that we want. Yeah. And so it's knowing what we want and or having an idea and that can adjust and having plans. And then I think a really important part too of financial adulting, and it's something that you talk about so beautifully and, and include in the conversation, is that we have to also talk about equity and how we're not starting from the same place and there's historical oppression and there's systemic barriers that people are experiencing. And so to say, I saved up and bought my home and I, and not acknowledge all the privilege I have that allowed me to do that. I think it helps us to understand our privilege that we could help close these gaps and then also understand if we're at disadvantages so that we can have some compassion and not be comparing ourselves with others when it's there's no comparison. Yeah, that's such an important note. And I think that's a, a perspective that is missing still from a lot of the general personal finance stuff. It's just the acknowledgement of the privilege, the acknowledgement of the systemic barriers that folks have, and just a more inclusive voice. So I love that you're factoring that in as well. Okay, so you know we get all types of things that we should be doing thrown at us on the daily by the personal finance community, right? You should be budgeting, saving, investing, building an emergency fund, saving to buy a house, getting insurance, writing a will in an estate plan. And it's just like, oh my God, 
it's all too much. Where do we start? Yes. So that's a really good question. And like all those, the shoulds, they could just eat you alive. (laughs) And that's why I think the small consistent steps are so important. I can talk about some generally recommended order of priority, but also it's taking an action. So if, if there's something that you're already interested in doing, or it kind of is something you're excited about doing and breaking the getting started step down enough that it doesn't feel daunting. And I think this happens with New Year's resolutions. It happens with all kinds of goals. We're like, we have to make monumental strides and (laughs) completely change my life. And we do it for a week and we're exhausted. So just, I think I'd love to talk about some potential steps. And also like, I think the mindset is really important that we can have a lot of shame and a lot of like punishing ourselves around money. And that really stops us. So Mm. as hard as it is, like if we mess up or if the step doesn't go well to kind of say, hmm, interesting, like what happened here? What can I do better next time? And think of it as this, like, I wish I could say you arrive and it's done, but it's this this lifelong journey we're all on to continue and get better and better at this. Right. So the first chapter of your book, it talks about what is a financial adult? Yes. Interesting. That's a question that I don't think I've ever heard asked before. (laughs) So I love that. And, you know, like what would be the definition of financial adult? So how I define it are those kind of those four things where you're taking the steps, you know where your money's going, you have plans that you feel confident. And the whole point of having money, you know, most of us are not motivated by having like just a stack. It's like what the stack of money gives you and allows you to have in your life. And so um, I think a great place to start is with goals. Mm -hmm. And like, what do you want? And it can be tangible things like, and it can also be feelings and then breaking down what those feelings, what's behind those feelings. So if it's like peace of mind, that could be like, oh, the rainy day fund, that could be having a budget. And I, I think, you know, budgets get a really bad rep. We think of them as like, it's like diet culture. (laughs) Exactly. But I found that as long as it's a loving budget, which I call them happiness allocations. Oh, I love that. (laughs) I think it's a better name. It's how we allocate our money in the way that's going to make us the happiest in the short and long term. Yeah, that part is the long term part is key. (laughs) Otherwise, we'd have a different budget, but we can build in potentially things that are more frivolous and more fun and not feel guilty about them because we know that they're not getting in the way, or we can afford them or that you know, there's enough money there for them. And so it can actually be really an act of self-love versus a this thing we have to do. I really love that perspective because you're right. I think a lot of the conversation around money is restriction, deprivation, uh, delayed gratification. And it's almost just like, at what point do I actually get to enjoy this money? Because I don't necessarily want to wait until I'm like in a nursing home to be like, okay, we have permission now to like go and live my life. And I think what strips a lot of people up to is this comparison. Just like, Mm -hmm. I need to be doing exactly what everybody else is doing and not taking into account your personal values, your goals, what do you want for your life? So I love that you start off with that. Do you have any like practical tips for how we can start to like visualize our goals? Are you like a journaler? Are you into like putting affirmations all over the wall? Like what's your strategy? In the book, there's an exercise that just like has us list things down that we want. And I think the strategy around the goals, so definitely listing out. And then there's like the prioritizing because if we're putting money aside for too many goals, it can feel very not motivating because they're all like kind of inching up, but 10 goals are inching up. Mm-hmm. And it's also hard to pick one or two goals. Like when you think about retirement's kind of a goal we're going to be always putting money aside for. So we can't just pick one. We got to. So I recommend like picking two to five goals, depending. And a lot of it goes back to knowing ourselves and testing things out and seeing how it feels. Like if two is way too few or five is like, I feel like I'm making no progress, you know, we can adjust. And a lot of this is about adjusting. But I do think keeping our goals top of mind. So a few things that are really important with goals is being clear on them. So having them be smart goals. So they're specific, measurable, like, you know, if you actually achieve them, not like I'm making more money or I'm saving more, (laughs) they're in your control. So it's not like my husband will save more. (laughs) Um, And they're relevant. So you're, you're pumped about them. They're, they make you excited and they have a time limit to them. So time bound. Um, And then keeping our motivation up. I think this is, it's really interesting the psychology of it. I've noticed it in all parts of my life, but as I 
get closer to a goal, it almost is like my brain makes it feel like it's not that exciting anymore. Mm -hmm. Or like, this is where I started. You know, it feels like you actually haven't made progress. And so I think (laughs) it's really important to actually track your progress because then you can see how far you've come. You can measure it versus our brain might be like, oh, I haven't really done much. Where was I? I was, I've been this place this whole time. And I do like having pictures. I used to live in an apartment where I worked in the basement and it was really dark and, you know, it was really great that I got, I had that space to do it, but it was dark and freezing down there. And I would dream about having like a very bright office. <laughs> and so I kept that, like I would find, I found a picture of an office and I put it in, I have a goal book where oh, I love that images in there. And even I don't do, I probably could do more with it. But when I look back at the goal book, it's amazing to see how they happen. Mm, yeah, I love that. Visualization is super powerful. And I think it's just like a constant reminder of what you're working towards. That's really useful. Okay, so since you talk about kind of consumer activism and just being aware of, you know, the greater systemic barriers that exist, one that is very apparent is the pay gap and Mm. the wage gap, especially for women of color. So that's one of the reasons why I talk so much about the power of side hustles and just like supplementing your income because we're starting like behind the eight ball. What are your best tips around like earning more side hustling as somebody who was able to take this from side hustle to your full-time job? Yes, that's a great question. And it's interesting because I feel like side hustle used to be this idea of like this extra money. And now it's sometimes needed, right? To even like pay the bills and have the lifestyle that you want. So I think sometimes we think of side hustles as smaller than they are. And so I think my biggest tip would be to treat it like a business to be the CFO of your side hustle, if you will. So a lot of the things that we do with our personal finances, we can also do with our business, like mapping out what we expect to earn, mapping out I think that plans are best if they're realistic, but also optimistic. If they're too optimistic, then it can feel like we're failing all the time. But mapping out our income, mapping out our expenses with building businesses, one of the biggest pain points I see is not putting money aside for taxes. (laughs) So I'm a a fan of having a, a separate tax fund where if even if you're paying your quarterly estimates to have like figure out the percentage so that every check that comes in money is going to that tax fund. I think too, like there's a section in the book on definitely we cover in chapter four, it's called all about income and we cover the wage gap. Like a lot of the things that need to happen to close it are higher level policy things and corporate policy. But one thing that we can do also is negotiate and we can do it in our salary jobs. We can do it in our, like if we are in our side hustles, if we're working with clients as much as I help other people negotiate, it is it is hard to negotiate for yourself. And so something that really helps me is thinking about how when I ask for what I believe I deserve, or maybe what the market rate is, or better, what I think the market rate should be, is that I'm helping to close that gap. And I'm giving, maybe I will experience the double bind and get pushback, but I am kind of paving the way for other women to be able to negotiate. And that really can get you feeling motivated and revved up before a and before sharing your rate. <laughs> I really love that perspective. And so one of the things that I've coached women in who are, you know, trying to build their side hustles is just like please do not ask other women of color to do free labor for you. Mm-hmm. Because then we're becoming the oppressors at that point. And so even if you can only afford to pay somebody like $50 for their time, $20, whatever, offering that income is just, it's going to make you just show up differently. It's going to make them show up differently. And it's going to help us be active participants in changing what's happening, right? So I think that's just super important to like be cognizant of that you're not perpetuating this cycle of unpaid labor for women, especially. Yes, I love it. And the something you mentioned too about the consumer activism chapter. So I think of consumer activism is like using your money to to support what you want to see more of in the world and removing your money from what you want to see less of. And mm. so what's really cool as a business owner or someone who's building a side hustle is you can instill those values in the way you mentioned like we always pay women and women of color. That's that could be like a, one of the business values and yeah. so we get to decide that's like very powerful as the CEO of your business that you get to create that mission and vision. Absolutely. Okay. So another thing that you talk about in the book is 
early retirement or becoming work optional. And I feel like this is a very polarizing topic because some folks are just like, no, I don't want to live on rice and beans and save my money for like 10 years and then retire in my 30s. Some people are just like, there's a bunch of people who are claiming they're financially independent, but they're frauds because they still have businesses. So they're not actually retired. It's a love-hate thing. I get it. It's very confusing. What is your thought on the FIRE movement at large? Yes. So it was funny because the fire movement, I forget when it started, but at first, that's exactly what I saw is like all these dudes eating beans. And I was like, that is not for me. (laughs) I am staying far away from that. And I kind of like never engaged in the movement at all. Now I'm seeing more women and women of color doing it differently and retiring. Like, first of all, right, like retiring in at the retirement age is a huge accomplishment that many, many, many people don't achieve. No fault of their own, honestly. It's like we have so many issues with retirement. So I think that also is daunting. It's like, I just want to retire. This whole retire early thing makes me even more stressed. (laughs) And I do think that there's like that, the balance and the, of living now and, you know, the higher expenses now and in retirement, the longer it will take us to retire potentially. So I think because it's such a murky, different for everyone thing. I'm excited about the new voices in that movement who are not as judgmental. It's not as like I'm wearing the same outfit and eating beans every day and um, doing it their own way. So I think it's kind of reviving the movement for me. (laughs) (laughs) No, I hear you. Um, If I never hear, you know, Mr. Money Mustache ever again, I'll be happy. I mean, I'm just like, there's just so many more people to hear from at this point. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online store shop phase to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash dinero, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash dinero now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash dinero. Um, let's also talk about the, what I would argue is like one of the pinnacles of being an adult that many of us feel pressure to is this idea of buying a home. Mm. Now, if you've heard anything about my story, I have a very love hate relationship with real estate because my experience was not very positive and I was getting just a lot of pressure from family and my circle to be like, you must buy a home. You are over 30. What are you doing with your life? I did it. I was not financially equipped for the responsibility. I was not mentally equipped for the responsibility. And so do you think that you can be a financial adult and not own a home? Like, is that a thing? 
A hundred percent. I think, you know, that's like one of the very misleading things about the quote unquote American dream. Yeah. Like buy the home. And there is so much pressure. Like, are you, you're not an adult and it depends where you live. Like in some places it's so expensive to buy a home that a lot of people who are adults do not. But in some places that's like the pressure is very strong to put the, the roots, roots down, um, yeah. <laughs> quote unquote again. And yeah, so I think I, there's this rent versus buy calculator that I love. It's on the New York times and it has so many inputs. And if you are not planning to live on in a home for a really long time, well, take a step back. The, first of all, I think we view the cost of the home as just the down payment. And buying a home is so much more expensive than that. And <laughs> if we just leverage the down payment as much as we can afford, it's we're going to feel really tight. And if something breaks or there's just so many more expenses, there's closing costs, there's maintenance now, like you can't call the landlord, all of these things that we want to be prepared for financially. Um, but then there are other things like, what are we going to do with the money if we didn't buy a home, right? Are we, if we're investing it in the market? What's happening to that home value? No, you know, we can make a guess, but we don't really know how long are we going to live in that home? Because if you're buying and selling quickly, you're absorbing all of those closing costs in a couple of years. And that can make it make not financial sense. And of course, there are people who have more subjective reasons for wanting to own a home that makes them feel financially stable. So I think, of course, it's still a great goal. But this idea that you can't financial adult without owning your home, I think, is complete bogus. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the fact that we're getting permission from someone like you to like take that pressure off because I think there's still just a lot of it's throwing money away. You're being irresponsible. You know, like the only way you can build wealth is through home ownership. And it's like, mm, no, not actually the case. And this is why it's important to have the diverse group of people that you get information from. So you're not just getting pigeonholed into one way of thinking about money. It's a very individual journey. Very individual. And there's, yes, so many things to consider. And the beginning of the chapter is very much like, is it right for you to buy a home? Yeah. It's a great first point. question. Right. <laughs> no one asked me that question. They're just like, you must do it. You must do it now. I don't recommend. <laughs> okay. So one thing that I have confronted now in my 30s as a financial adult is this upper echelon, if you will, of money conversations when we're talking about things like insurance and estate planning. It just all feels very like bougie, pinkies up, like who the hell am I to be having these conversations? What the hell's a beneficiary? What are some things that we should be thinking about? Maybe even just like if you're in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, not typically ages, you would think about things like death and generational wealth transfers. <laughs> yes, I would say like tax planning, estate planning, Insurance, those are like top level financial adulting for sure. So there's a bunch of types of insurance. And I think there's some, you know, there's some that we engage with our whole life, like health insurance. First, with any type of insurance, it's just you want to ask a ton of questions and know how people are getting paid. So I think that is really telling and trying to understand. I think a lot of these things are complicated because that behooves the company selling you the product to not understand it. So a lot of questions are really important. I think estate planning does sound really bougie, like you have to have so much money to do it, but we all have an estate and it's just like what we have and what we owe and a will or an estate plan is essentially saying what you would want to happen to that if you were to die. And that could be a plan for if you have debt that would pass on after you so that those that are your next of kin or who you want to leave things to are don't have um, to pay it on their own. Or even like, for example, with generational wealth transfer, something I learned, I learned a lot by writing these chapters because it was funny. We have young kids. I had written a will and done some estate planning. And then after interviewing all these people, I was like, oh, I've did this all wrong. <laughs> I need to go back and do this again. But when you pass on a house or a home, let's say we pass it on to somebody, like they actually have to pay the mortgage now and the taxes. And so just, I think having these conversations, um, it could also be with having them with parents, like understanding their wishes as they get older and how we can protect them and support them how they want to instead of waiting until it's a time where it's really urgent. 
and just knowing what they have planned, because I think that is something that a lot of us are concerned about is should supporting my family be part of my financial plan if it's not already? If it is, what does that look like as they get older? And people even are deciding where to live based on that, how many rooms they need. And so while it's something kind of like retirement, where there's a lot of variables we can't exactly know, like when we're going to die or what the market's going to do, or we can plan and make educated estimates about those type of things and have conversations, even though those conversations, I remember when we did our guardians, which are the people who will take care of your children, if something were to happen to you, I cried, you know, you don't want to think about that situation. And then once you pick, they're like, okay, now we need a backup. Right. I pick two. (laughs) So I really understand why people avoid the conversations. But in my interviews with the trust and estates attorney, Lorianne Douglas, she shared that often people who estate plan are people who have experienced when someone else didn't. Mm. And it's Mm -hmm. really the biggest gift that when someone is mourning you or you're going through something with a loved one, that there's a plan and that there's not this huge headache. Yeah. When you've put it like that, it really is such an important conversation to have because I think the last thing you want to be doing is dealing with a crisis. You know, somebody passes away unexpectedly, there's nothing written down. And then like it can cause conflict with family and loved ones. And like, who needs that when you're already dealing with like so much stuff? Right. And so when it comes to being a financial adult, I think it's, we also have to think about like, when is the right time to start enlisting professional help? Right. Like, I don't think you necessarily need to maybe hire a professional to help you figure out a budget. You know, maybe you want to like contact a money coach or something like that. But at some point, you know, you're going to have to start talking to like attorneys, maybe CPA if you have a business, maybe a certified financial planner. When should we start thinking about this stuff? Yes, it's a great question. I think for some people, it's right away because if you're not going to do things on your own, and you need support in order to do them. And you know yourself, like you want to, be, for example, if you know yourself and you're never going to start investing unless you talk to a CFP or have a financial advisor, then it's important to have those conversations. Even if regardless of who you hire, I think another really important point is you always want to know what's happening with your money. And that's a really important thing to get a vibe of in a conversation with a professional is that they're not going to kind of poo-poo your questions and they will sit there and explain things to you and you feel comfortable to really understand what's happening with your money, whether that's in your estate plan with an attorney, whether that's in your prenuptial agreement. That's another thing we talk about in the book is in relationships, how to protect yourself. So if that's if you're not married and you're living together a cohabitation agreement, I interviewed an amazing divorce attorney about that, Lauren Hunt. And if you are married, like how to protect your your assets, because typically the woman is the one who gets screwed in the case of a divorce somehow, some way, every time. So really thinking about protecting yourself is another big financial adulting thing. And Daisha, actually, Daisha Kennedy of the Broke Black Girl, she talks about the walkway fund and having enough money saved so that if you needed to walk away at any point, because so many, I think it's 99% of abuse cases include financial abuse. And so to be able to have that protection to get up and walk away and not need to wait for court proceedings or transfer of funds or which could take a long time and have you not be able to leave or have to build up credit card debt while you're waiting. So a long tangent. So I think there's different points for different things. But for example, like there's to buy insurance, you are you have to work with a broker. And it could be a digital broker online. I interviewed Jennifer Fitzgerald from Policy Genius for the book. And so that their system is all online to get life insurance. But th- these financial professionals are often needed in those points to create your prenup or your cohabitation agreement. It would be like, a depending on how complex and how many concerns you have, a meeting or a couple meetings with um, an attorney. And same for estate planning. We can do, there's some disability documents like, your healthcare proxy and living will and power of attorney can all be done online. But And there are services to create your will online, but the recommendation from those I interviewed was to talk to a, a professional for those as well. Yeah. I don't recommend like trying to DIY legal documents. I just feel like there's just too many <laughs> opportunities for you to screw up or create something that's like not even enforceable, doesn't even make sense. So 
I think it's just about kind of knowing where your area of expertise ends and not seeing that as a flaw somehow. Like just, I think you must get used to this idea that as you get better with money, as you build wealth, you're just going to have to enlist financial professionals. And that's just part and parcel with the game. And they pay off, I think. So when you, and I guess it's a really interesting question, like when it makes sense. And I think it's when you start to have questions or when Mm. you're like, or you're at dinner and your friend tells you about this great tax saving strategy they're using. And you're like, wait, I need to know about this. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And yeah. And I think too, I interviewed a few like financial planners for the book and they work with people in different ways. Like depending on if you want to have someone you're able to call up all year round and talk about things, but sometimes it's like, a meeting for a couple hours and you're set up for a few years and you're just good to go. So I think having questions or things you're concerned about is, and as things get more complicated and grow is kind of a nice impetus to say, okay, maybe I should talk to someone and see, but always know how they're paid and always make sure that you feel like they'll, they'll be uh, answering your questions and that you get along with them, honestly. Yeah. They, they should definitely understand your goals your unique situation. And I love the fact that you said when things get complicated, because that's exactly when I started looking, I need a CFP on retainer because I'm just like now helping my parents plan for retirement. I'm like, I don't even know what the hell you guys have. So let's bring in a professional here because I don't want to necessarily screw this up. If you feel like you're just not qualified to handle whatever the situation is, don't be afraid to reach out to your network, find somebody that you trust and and have them kind of in your back pocket. And it's kind of like a doctor, sorry to interrupt, but no, a doctor yeah, would not see themselves, even though they mm. know a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think it was interesting. I interviewed people shared how they invest, which I thought was cool. Like what looking in at what they're doing with their investments, that is interesting to see, uh, to see investment professionals, what they're doing. Even people who are like the lead financial planner for a robo-advisor use the robo-advisor or have <laughs> someone helping them, you know? So yeah, there's no shame in that, I think at all. Yes. So another thing that I love that you talk about in the book is this idea of being an investor for the greater good, not just investing necessarily for you know returns and for the financial aspect of it, but actually using your money to potentially change the world. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So in the book, in that chapter, we talk about that's like investing outside of retirement. So how we invest our money in our brokerage accounts. And then we talk about, or I talk about it. I've collaborated with so many people on this book. I keep saying we, but really I wrote it. So the ESG investing. And so that stands for environmental social governance. And there's ways to, you know, I think there a key theme that came up over and over in my interviews on consumer activism, which is deciding what companies to spend our money with. And ESG investing is that it's not perfect, that we're like the system's flawed. And if you have too many criteria, there's going to be nothing left to invest in. But choosing things that are important to you, whether that's you want to invest with companies that have diverse boards and diverse management teams, or ones that are working to be more sustainable or working on reducing like the harm to the planet. So you can screen for those type of things. And there are funds that do that. And there's also a tool at the MSCI tool that you can search and see how these companies stack up. And I think there'll be more and more of these funds because the demand is high. People are getting more interested in this and they care about where they're putting their money in. And a cool part is that research has been showing that we're not really giving up returns by investing in these funds because they're companies that are doing the right thing are often getting rewarded or companies with diverse management are doing better. And so often it's this win-win. Yeah, I love that. It's just, you don't really understand the power that you have to change the world with money until you realize how much good you can do with it. So um, I, I love that message. And one of the things that I'm really passionate about in the personal finance space is this idea of like the connection between your mental health and your overall financial health, which I don't think gets talked about enough, especially for marginalized communities, people of color. Mental health is still very much a stigma and it does impact, you know, everything about how we show up in the world. So have you done any exploration of that topic? And like, what do you think the overall personal finance space could do better to make this Mm. like 
not a nuanced conversation because I don't I don't really think it is. I think all of us have shit we're dealing with and we're still trying to get our financial stuff together too. <laughs> totally. Yes. And like I think this has come to a head or in this pandemic. Oh, like, for sure. We're all a mess right now. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I like even lucky ones are a mess. So there's an interesting book. And so I, there I think of it this two ways. And tell me if I'm completely taking what you're saying and moving on a tangent. But there is a book called Scarcity. And it talks about how not like not even the rat race, but like trying to make ends meet, like what that actually does to our brain and how that influences like how our brain works. And I think that that is, it's really fascinating and it's really important. So I think that's how money can impact our mental health and just generally stress. Like money can lead to so much stress of not having it and others from having too much of it. Sometimes that can lead to a lot of problems. But also, I think it also is pretty interesting when people focus on their well-being and Right now, that could include like healthcare costs. It could include investing in mental health. It actually is really expensive. Absolutely. Therapists are expensive. Taking time off can be really expensive. Like investing in the things we need are, can be really expensive. And that's unfortunate. <laughs> Prioritizing that and viewing that as worthy and valuable is really important for the personal finance community, I think, to talk about. Otherwise, if it's this idea like, it's all about saving and not using our money and not prioritizing it on things that will improve our well-being, then that totally misses the mark because money is part of our well-being. Absolutely. And it just, it makes me think of like, people are recommending that folks who get COVID quarantine at home for two weeks. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. of like a mom who's making minimum wage in a job that has no benefits cannot afford to do the thing that is quote unquote societally like responsible, right? So it's like mm. we're almost creating a society where people have to choose between their health and their money, and it's just so fucking toxic. Like we can't have conversations around money without realizing the greater systemic shit that needs to change, like providing a living wage, like providing paid maternity leave, like providing paid sick leave, like holding your politicians accountable for all the fucked up stuff that's going on in society. Like it's all connected. So it like frustrates me when I get comments that it's just like, why do you make this political? Why are you talking about? And it's just like, dude, money's political. I mean, point blank period. I don't know why you're confused. (laughs) Yes. If the minimum wage has been 725 for the last 20 years and the prices of goods have gone up like 20 something percent. In a year. (laughs) You can't budget your way out of that, right? No, you cannot. Yeah. Um, and yes, paid leave. I think that was something that came up over and over again, paid sick leave, paid maternity and paternal leave. So parental leave as like things that make it motherhood and is a huge part of the pay gap and the wealth gap and, and the ability to take, especially like that really was, we saw a lot of that in the pandemic of people not being able to take time off when they're sick or getting paid and now they can't afford life. And then the, Yeah. Yeah, it's a mess. It is. And I think that the more we have these conversations, the more we can start to just make folks aware and have them start asking some of the harder questions of, you know, greater society in general. So, so I'm wondering, like, as a financial adult, like, how do you know when you're done? Are you done? (laughs) I know. It's bad news, friends. You're never done. (laughs) Oh, damn it. All right. I knew that was coming. (laughs) But I think it's almost, you know, it's kind of like the thing we talked about where like you thought when you got the title or the pay, you you would feel like you made it. And it's, I think when you have the opportunity to hit some big goals, you know, you think this is all you've ever wanted. Even when it's something that means a ton to you, it's not just like what someone told you you should do. It doesn't fill you. And I think it's about like enjoying the journey and enjoying the mess ups and as hard as that is, because even if I make a my plan this year and it goes really great, like I don't know what's coming next year. I'll have a different, Mm. you got to just, or things that were really important to me a couple of years ago, and I love spending money on, I would, I wouldn't now anymore. And now things shift. So I think for our money to reflect our values and to bring us the most joy, we need to keep in touch with it. I love it. So Ashley, for folks that want to find out more about you, get your book. It's called Financial Adulting. And it is releasing February 2022. Yes, February 23rd. And you can 
get the book at financialadultingbook.com. Amazing. And where can we follow you on social? At the Fiscal Femme, F-I-S-C-A-L-F-E-M-M-E. That's fantastic. Are, are there ways that folks can work with you? Like, do you have uh, programming, coaching, uh, things like that, that folks can find out more about? My first book was The 30-Day Money Cleanse. So that's another one very focused on budgeting, money mindset. So this, and it's definitely also a workbook, colorful, I think very fun to work through. And then this book is covering all the topics, bringing in a lot of other experts versus my first book was just from my perspective. And then I also have online courses and you can find them on my website. There's uh, right now there's four different ones that you can check out. Fantastic. And we'll make sure to link all of those in the show notes. Thank you so much for making this space so much more inclusive, making the conversation much less bro-y and much more relatable. I appreciate all the work that you do. Thank you so much. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you are ready to take your dinero to the next level, Sign up for our free 14-page guide, The Financially Lit Latina, the ultimate blueprint for becoming poderosa with your dinero. This 14-page guide includes our best tips on money mindset, budgeting, debt repayment, career, investing, financial independence, side hustles, and more. And you can get it completely free. So to get your copy of The Financially Lit Latina, just head over to YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start. That's YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start and start transforming your dinero story today. Until next time, stay empowered, stay inspired, and stay poderosa. On the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast and associated entities, all information provided is for general information purposes only and does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, or other professional advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this podcast and associated entities and disclaim all liability with respect to such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Usage of this podcast and associated contents constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.